welcome to the Tiny Living Beings podcast. I'm your host, Julia Van Etten. Each episode, I have a conversation with a scientist about a microorganism they like and why it's interesting to them. Our planet is full of billions of different microscopic organisms, most of which are still unknown to science. The ones we do know are diverse and strange. This week, I spoke with Dr. Kristen, also known as K-Dubs the Hiking Scientist, about all things fungi. I noticed right away that she pronounces it fungi, and I was like, yeah, of course, that's how I've always said it too. And then I also said fungi the whole episode. Pronunciation really doesn't matter and is rarely important, but I never know if it's fungi, 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 I think that's how British people say it, or something else. So that was the first of many new things I picked up from this conversation. Kristen explains what fungi are, what we can learn from them, and about some examples of plant-infecting fungi that have changed whole ecosystems like the American chestnut blight. She also explains how fungi are literally everywhere and what that means for us. And in what has become a tradition on this podcast, we tackle some misinformation and learn about how to spot likely correct versus likely incorrect information online. We end the episode with some amazing advice from Kristen on how to get involved in learning about nature. I've been a fan and friend of Kristen and her science communication for a long time, and she doesn't disappoint. She's smart, funny, and really knows what she's talking about. For more information about microbes of the podcast, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. While some of the content on this podcast may be relevant to human or veterinary medicine, this information is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests and do not reflect the views of any institution. Enjoy the episode. Sure. Okay. I'm going to attempt to do this intro. Welcome to Tiny Living Beings. I'm here with Dr. Kristen, also known as K-Dubs the Hiking Scientist, who is a plant pathologist. Welcome, Kristen. How's it going? Hi, it's so good. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. Before we get started, could you give a quick summary of your scientific background and what it is that you do? Sure. You know, to be honest, I'm a little intimidated to talk to you because I see the stuff that you do that's so intense all the time. Like, you really are a microscopy person that understands what you're doing. And I I have some microscopes behind me, but they're like really old. (laughs) They're just for like looking at things I find outside. But that is pretty much what my, you know, my work is both my research and previous experience in getting my degrees was going outside and looking for microorganisms that cause disease on forest trees. So like you said, I'm a plant pathologist. I went to school for that, but I also got my degree in, you know, kind of entomology. But even within that field of plant pathology, there's super specific people, right? There's a lot of people who study soy because that's where a lot of money goes and we need that stuff to eat and to feed animals. But I am kind of a weirdo that studies forest trees and what makes them sick. And then my expertise in that very obscure realm is fungi. That's awesome, because that's something that I don't know that much about. So I'm really excited to talk about it. And that was very nice what you said about me and microscopy. <laughs> but that's exactly how I feel about you. Because your account is one of my favorite accounts. I love your posts. I feel like you just what? know so oh. much about the forest. Like, I love it. <laughs> So what are we going to be talking about today? 
Uh, I think we'll just talk about generally what fungi are. And, you know, they're kind of our obscure, right? Bacteria were known about for a long time. Mm-hmm. And fungi have been based in there with plants for a long time. And that's not true. So they're a pretty, air quotes, your listeners can't see this, but air quotes, new kingdom relatively. Uh, you know, some of our parents are older than kingdom fungi. So it's kind of interesting to think about what they are and how they interact in the landscape and since you talk about tiny little things they are stuff that we look at in microscopes to identify so I thought maybe we could go over generally what fungi are and then the roles they play in the ecosystem and like why I am you know an expert in what I'm an expert in and then how we tell them apart Perfect. I don't know. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, I really like what you said about how the fungi clade is kind of like a new thing, which to me isn't a crazy concept because I study protists and like every day there's a new kingdom level (laughs) grouping of protists. And and I always like to think just like plants and animals, fungi are just one tip on this eukaryotic tree of life. So and, and they're a tip that's like very specious and people... People don't care about them enough, I think. Right. They're just becoming popular right now. And uh, I was just looking at the tree of life and seeing how fungi really are not understood at all. And there's really only a few of them that have even had their genomes looked Mm. at, which is, you know, it was a big deal 10 years ago to get a genome sequenced. And now you can do it a lot easier, like crazy, like a scientist 10 years ago be like, what do you mean you're sequencing a genome? But within the branches of kingdom fungi, within the tree of life, the figure I was looking at had lines that were either gray or black, and black meant that it had been, you know, a member of that group had been sequenced, and everything else was gray, and it had not been sequenced or looked at genetically yet. But in fungi, there were only a few things compared to kingdom animalia, of course, but in fungi, there were only like a few black lines and they were the agricultural crop sure. ailment species, right? Things that kill soy <laughs> or <Yeah>. kill corn. <laughs> that makes sense. And I share your frustrations. So how do you define fungi? What are fungi? So I always like to share the fun fact that fungi are more closely related to us as animals and they are to plants but if you look at a lot of older field guides you know from like the early 60s that are you know sold in fun little flea markets and stuff now they'll often have dangerous plants and they'll be the beautiful mario mushroom on the cover of that or it'll have like forest plants and it's just mushrooms so i just think it's really interesting that we've lumped them together based off of their morphology and their habits ages ago. But then when we look at them genetically, they're actually really closely related to us. And then when you even think about their function to rationalize that, they're really closely related to us, right? So fungi, if we look at it, this is a microscopy related podcast. If you look at it under a microscope, fungi are made out of hyphae. Like all fungi are made out of individual strands of hyphae. And together, this might be a more common word that your listeners have heard, they are called collectively hyphae are called mycelium so like there's you know those famous books called like mycelium running and stuff like that fungi are just made out of a collection of hyphae that are formed into mycelium and then what we see when we go for these beautiful walks in the forest are the mushrooms which are like the fruiting bodies they're so distinctly different in their function of growing these hyphae that are not roots the hyphae actually use enzymes a lot like us to digest food and that's probably the number one reasoning 
for them being more closely related to animals than being related to plants because plants are usually green because chloroplasts and chlorophyll and all that stuff making their own food. So they're autotrophs, whereas our fungi are absorptive heterotrophs, just like us. We're heterotrophs and we are consuming other organisms to get our energy. So that's the number one big thing that has been recent discovery that put them in their own kingdom. That's great. That was such a good explanation. I always ask, where where are these organisms found? And I have a feeling mm-hmm. the answer is just everywhere, but I don't know. Right. Can you talk a little bit about the distribution of fungi or certain so types far. of fungi? <laughs> so this morning I was in the forest. My boyfriend and I just went on this big hiking trip with his friends. And while we were, I was done packing the car and I just laid on this log because I don't know why. <laughs> I just wanted to relax and take in the scene. And I laid on this log over a creek and I was just looking at the bark of the tree. And this is related to your question, I promise. No, yeah. And I was looking at the bark. There were just so many different things living on the bark of this one tree that had fallen over. And it was a lot of lichens. And lichens are fungi. You know, they're in a, their own relationship, which you can have your own that could be a whole episode talking about lichens on this for sure. But, you know, each of those lichens originated from a fungal spore just blowing in the wind and landing on the surface of the tree bark, being in the relationship with the algae there, and then forming a lichen. And it was just like, I was thinking about where fungi are this morning, just laying on the lawn. And I was just thinking like, they're literally everywhere. They're just blowing around everywhere, going into our nostrils, getting caught on our nose hairs. And if they're lucky enough to land somewhere where they have resources or the connection that they need is there from the other organisms, they will divide and survive and conquer. And so you're right, these fungal spores and fungal hyphae are literally everywhere doing all sorts of crazy jobs. And they can be found breaking things down in the soil to make it available, you know, making dimers into single things for other things to eat. Or they can be acting as plant pathogens, which means that they are an organism that kills plants. They can be acting as something like on your foot, that's athlete's foot, eating your foot. (laughs) And they can also just be living inside of plants as a symbiotic relationship where they share nutrients or They can be living in a plant or in a whole field we don't really fully understand yet in something called endophytes, Mm. where a fungus just lives inside of plant cells and we aren't completely sure what that relationship is. So fungi are literally everywhere. They're on your eyeballs right now, (laughs) but you have an immune system that destroys those cells or propagules. So yeah, they're everywhere doing everything. Yeah, that's so cool. Like five years ago, I was a TA for like a general microbiology lab and there was one lab activity the students had to do where they were just given a Petri dish. I don't know. I think it, you know, it had like a pH that was somewhat favorable to fungi, but they were given a Petri dish and we were just like, go outside, just like open the Petri dish somewhere outside and then we're going to put it in the incubator. And mm-hmm. the next week it was just blooming with orange and black and brown. It was all, it was all fungi. I mean, there was some bacteria too, but it was crazy how you think there's nothing out there. You think it's just air. And every single student had many different types of fungi on their Petri dish. So just from exposing yep. it to the air for 10 seconds. Right. 10 seconds. That's like the protocol for microbiology 101. So it's just think about it. You just open this thing and 10 seconds of the air blowing around. And like you were saying, the different colors, usually that's indicative of different species. So you have 10 different species that are blown around at that 10 second gap. And then they land on the food source that they're able to digest. So really... 
there's probably even more organisms that are flying through the air that land on the petri plate, but they don't like the food source. So that's it. So yeah, the fungal spores are everywhere and they're just hoping that they land somewhere where they can turn into mycelium and they can make mushrooms or other types of fruiting structures to reproduce. It's amazing. So I guess <laughs> <laughs> it is amazing. I think it's so cool that there's just microbes and life everywhere. Yeah, um, I was totally lost for like probably like 20 minutes today just staring at some bark on a log. I get it. <laughs> I get it. I'm always like doing the same thing with slimy puddles. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I love your water samples. They're cool. Thank you. Could you talk a little bit about what are some prominent fungi in your brain? You do a lot of forest dwelling like, and, you, and you study diseases and plants and insects that probably come from fungi. So could you talk a little bit about some of the fungi that you see every day and why you study them and why they're interesting? Sure. We could talk about America's most famous plant pathogen, chestnut blight. Have okay. you ever heard of it? I've heard of it because yeah. of the one other talk I went to that you did, I think. But... <laughs> oh, sorry. Well, uh, chestnut blight is something that's really was incredibly impactful during the early colonial times of, oh gosh, you know, sorry, chestnut trees were very important during the colonization. I like, I even hate talking about this because like it's such an awful thing that people yeah. did when they came over. We can edit this, we can not, whatever. But like chestnuts were really important to people becoming established in the eastern range of the United States. And they were called the tree that allows for, you know, cradle to grave because you would make baby cradles out of the wood of the chestnut, then you would eat the chestnut your entire life. And then you would, you know, make coffins out of these trees because they were so big and numerous and really allowed people to survive and prosper in this area. And in the 1950s, a fungal pathogen was introduced from Asia that was brought in on nursery stock of a different species of chestnut. And the American chestnut was not adapted to this and got infected and pretty much has been wiped out from the East Coast when it was a really numerous and prolific (laughs) and impactful tree on the East Coast. And you can still see straggler trees today in the forest that are slowly dying because of a fungal pathogen that infected and killed the main mother stem back in the 60s. So this fungal pathogen, as soon as it was introduced in New York, it really only took a couple of decades for it to wipe out an entire species of tree on the East Coast. And there's a few populations of chestnut in the Midwest and the West Coast that are like remnant survivors because they were outplanted Mm. from people traveling across the United States, but it was just really impactful. And there's really no way to be absolutely certain how much of an impact they had on our forest because people weren't taking notes and doing scientific studies on that stuff back then. But just from what we can see today, it's thought that a lot of our forest composition has really changed. And just the tertiary associations of like you know, even deer population, bear population, and then microbes associated with that all, their populations are really impacted because a significant proportion of our forest was destroyed from a fungal pathogen. Hmm. That's sad and interesting. Yes. So this is still a fungal organism that is being studied today in order to control it and also to hopefully bring back chestnut to the eastern forests, which have just been so altered by colonialism and establishment and settlement. And people look outside in the forest today and think that that is how it's looked forever. 
But really, it's probably going to look that way your lifetime. And so it's just like the whole forest here is just so changed already that it's like, who really knows what we're doing and introducing, you know, the chestnuts. I support it. I think it's very interesting. But what we've done, not me personally, but, you know, scientists in forestry related fields have made a GMO chestnut that is mm. resistant to chestnut blight fungus. Cryphonectra parasitica is the scientific name of it. And they've also done breeding with the Chinese chestnut that had natural resistance. And the takeaway from this is that even though this was introduced 50 years ago, it still has a lot of scientists working on it and trying to impact the forest in a positive way by reintroducing a key player in our native habitats. Yeah, that's a wild story. So this fungus, it's completely decimated these trees and that was a good point you made about thinking oh is this how the forest has always looked because I think that all the time my house growing up was kind of in the woods and I always grew up thinking this must be you know what it looked like when it was colonized you know like before things became industrialized and all the forests were knocked down but I guess it wasn't and so this fungus how does it infect the tree to make it sick It does what all fungi do in that it is a absorptive heterotroph, but how fungi eat is they release enzymes that break down their food substrate on the outside of the hyphae and then particular items of or molecular constituents of what the plant is or whatever they're eating, they absorb it through transporters, right? So it's all done externally and whatever is desired is brought into the Mm. hypo body. But plant pathogens also utilize chemicals so they utilize like chemical warfare in order to break down the plant cell walls in order to have more access to the things that they want like the sugars and other things micro and macronutrients that the plant has in its cells so i believe that cryphonectra parasitica the causal agent of chestnut blight i believe it makes oxalic acid which breaks down the tissues of the plant and allows them to Mm. access all of the sugars in the plant cells that have been leached out. So plant pathogens have the ability to utilize chemicals to break down their host. And then they also have very specialized enzymes that break down their plant cells as well. And, you know, plants are really interesting because they're made out of lignin, which is incredibly hard to decompose. Like if you or I ate lignin, it, we wouldn't be able would to just, decompose it at all. just like poop it, it would, out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It'd be like eating a bunch of toothpicks, right? There's no yeah. way you're going to be able to pass that or get any nutrients from it. But fungi are one of the rare organisms and some bacteria that can break down lignin into smaller molecules and be able to utilize it. So they have, you know, ligase and things like that. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That's kind of freaky to think about these basically microscopic things taking down whole trees. (laughs) Right. Yes. Very quickly too. So what the symptom is that we see on chestnut trees when they've been infected with a fungus are what we call cankers. They're diffuse cankers in this scenario, and they really just cause a ring of death around the entire stem that doesn't allow the tree to translocate water, like move water up Mm -hmm. and down to its canopy so the canopy dies. And then what's the main job of the canopy? To make food for the plant because the leaves have the chloroplasts. And so it's just like a really quick KO punch. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Yeah, it's not like because I know some fungi break down fallen leaves and help make the soil, and you know, right? Those, that's a good story. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna I was gonna segue into that, but I guess these pathogenic fungi don't do that. Affecting whole trees, I could see that having huge cascading effects on the whole ecosystem. Everything depends mm-hmm. on trees. 
Yeah. And things are extremely specialized in every ecosystem. And in a place like where, where I live and where you live in, you know, Appalachia adjacent, yeah. it's, you know, we have a really high diversity of plants and high diversity of trees. And so there's one type of bird that likes to nest in this type of tree. Mm-hmm. And when that tree's gone, what does that bird do? And that's just like the most simple example to visualize. Whereas, you know, you and I who look at microscopes and microorganisms, we know that there's probably like 10,000 things that are associated with one type of tree species that we don't even know anything about yet. And there's 10,000 things associated with them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole network. Well, and so, okay. So back to the soil thing, because the idea of soil is very fascinating to me. I don't know why, but I don't even know a lot about it, but I'm always talking about it. I like the idea. I I'm the same with sand too. I like the idea of like with sand, there's silt and there's gravel and there's sand. And I like the idea of the different layers of the soil and how they all mm-hmm. come to be. And I think part of that is because the last couple of years I've done some research into the origin of land plants and like mm. the evolution of algae and how really just a matter of a few hundred million years ago, there really wasn't anything living on land and algae and then plants colonized land. And I don't think they could have done that without fungi So and without soil being there. You can't just like right. plop on a rock and live there if you're a plant. You yeah. need to grow roots and dig your roots into something. So I think fungi play this like fundamental role in how anything lives on land. And I think that's interesting. They do. Yeah, there's things that we kind of have similar today. And uh, like the, the lycopodiums look similar for us to visualize what the first land plants yeah. were. Of course, they were different size and different constraints because of the atmosphere. But they have fossil records of the plants that resembled the lycopodium, the really small bryophytes yeah. that colonized first. They actually have fossil records of mycelium mm. in the root system of those plants. So it's pretty incredible. And it just seems so interesting to me that Fungi are something that's so, in my mind, they seem so delicate, right? The individual hyphae is, they're so small. You know, I have to use like 100x to be able to see hyphae and the features that they have. And it's so crazy to think that there's fossils that you can actually look at of that. And a really good friend of mine, she works on fossilized pollen. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and that's something else that's literally everywhere. We we kind of grow up, or maybe I should just speak for myself, I grew up thinking that fossils were in Egypt or somewhere <laughs> very far away from here, but we literally took a lump of coal from my backyard and I took it to her as a joke and she pulverized it with acid and she found pollen in there and the pollen had fungi inside of them. And so she's looking at the fungal propagules that are inside of pollen. And it's really unknown what kind of role they played in the establishment of these old ancient trees that we have no idea what they were like, except for their pollen, because pollen doesn't degrade and can last for millions of years longer Mm -hmm. than the organic material that created them. Yeah, that is so cool. Well, and like, you know, I guess plant and fungus associations are it seems kind of as ancient as plants and fungi themselves. And it's cool to think about ecologically because things being associated with each other ultimately lead to these things making each other stronger. And mm-hmm. it's cool to think about. Um, say, I don't know. Say something. That wasn't a question. I didn't ask you a question. <laughs> no, no, no. We can build off of that because the uh, the whole thing of the pollen having the fungi inside of them in these really distinct, unique to me, even they look like they're just like a dark spot yeah. inside of the pollen, which you're looking at with a microscope. 
but to my friend who is a pollenologist, she's like, oh, that's easy. That's fungi. That's distinctly different than all hmm. other samples we have and stuff. And so it's just thinking about what role they played. But today, I've mentioned it earlier, there's this topic of endophytes, yes. which, you know, if you just break down the word, I really like words, especially in science, because it helps us understand what's going on. Endo means in and phyte means plant. And so there's this group of fungi called endophytes. And if you think about it, the fungi inside of those pollen is likely doing that role where it's living inside and helping the pollen establish in some way. And it might be that fungi have much smaller mycelium or much smaller hyphae that actually gives them greater surface area so they can access nutrients and water more. And so it helps things establish. And I know pollen is not seeds, but you know, that's just yeah. a way easier way for us to yeah, understand yeah. what like the benefits. So there's examples like in orchids where there's orchid seeds that will not germinate because they don't have an endosperm. They require making contact with fungal hyphae in the soil to germinate and to make this exchange of nutrients. So yeah, the thought of fungi being on them their own in the environment way, 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 way back when doing something with the soil is like, you know, that relationship of not even being a relationship or that job probably didn't exist that long until the plants and them combined because it's just so easy for them to do the trade-off of value or of like things they can have. So it's just, yeah, the relationship of fungi and plants is incredible to think about. You can definitely lose a whole day sitting in a single chair staring at the wall thinking about that. Yeah, totally. And this is making me think of this other fungus-related topic, which I don't know if this is controversial, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on it. Like there's there's I a lot of already. <laughs> there's there's a lot of this like new agey shit going on with like <laughs> with like <laughs> with people being like there's you know well there's like the there's like the networks of mycelia in the forest and people everything's connected and people oh, this is the pe- other controversial topic oh well i, I know there's a tv show oh well so, asked me if i watched well which tv because i've watched one of them the and I, lost of us the last oh, of us no i haven't watched that yet but but i haven't watched it either okay well then we won't talk <laughs> about that but there's... everybody just turned off their radio <laughs> or whatever speaker yeah well, well, well yeah but no i just feel like there's a lot of this like people are very into the idea of fungi because of psychedelics and now there's all these documentaries <laughs> right. out and now people are into this idea of the whole earth being connected by these networks of mycelia mm-hmm. and I don't know can you like myth bust that like I what's give you my opinion about yeah it yeah i've people who study fungi who are on that side and it really is divisive it's really you know some people think like what you're saying that the fungi that are in mycorrhizal relationships with trees or plants are making this really big network of one big organism that's sharing resources in like this really peaceful friendly way it's very gaia very like mother gaia like and like again i'm gonna like no shame to those people because now one day I might die and find out there's a God and I'll be like, oh, cool. Now I know the answer. But like, you know, right now I'm like, I don't know if there's a God. So one day I might find out that the connectedness was all right. And I'll be like, all right, well, you were right. But what I believe having forestry experience is that everything outside is competing for the small amount of resource that they have. So plants like trees, when they are growing at a sapling stage, they're all trying to kill each other. They're all growing and competing and growing really fast in order to shade each other out 
And it really is just like a game of genetics and resources Mm -hmm. and whoever it's survival of the fittest. And fungi are kind of utilizing these plants as a food source and sure they'll give them some water and stuff because it keeps their food source alive. It's almost like managing livestock. And the thing about sharing resources, if like this tree is not doing so well, they'll send them water. I just think it's one continuous kind of flow that doesn't really have a conscious thought yeah. that says, ooh, tree number A over there is not doing so well. Let's send him some resources. It's all just one big network that's everything's flowing through because the environment has water over here and water over here. Yeah. And, you know, things are going to go through the easiest pathway or the shortest pathway. And maybe that tree will get the resources versus the tree over here. It's my opinion. It really seems like it's a personification of altruism, which yes. doesn't necessarily exist often in nature, right? There's the magpies that take the sensors off of each other when the scientists put the trackers on them. That's pretty interesting. That's a relationship. But plants, as far as we know right now, they're all out just trying to survive on their own, reproduce on their own. And as far as we know, Fungi are doing the same thing, right? They're utilizing a resource and proximity of sharing and allocation of those resources makes it that something survives better. But it's not a saving someone from the trenches kind of a deal. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's probably how I'd be inclined to think about it too. And if there's a plant not getting a lot of nutrients, that's going to make it easier for some pathogenic fungi to come and and get it which is good for that fungi but maybe not good for the other ones like I think this idea of everything being like connected in this peace and love kind of way it almost implies that there's like one species of fungi that are doing one thing and I guess they're you know they're not a monolith there's like a lot well no that's that's exactly what I was thinking of too I wanted to add that you know these trees are in these symbiotic relationships with the fungi that create these beautiful mushrooms you see in the forest and they really are just kind of claiming their turf because Mm -hmm. a lot of these fungi have these chemicals I mentioned about killing their host, but they also have chemical warfare and claiming their turf. And a lot of times, like those Petri plates you mentioned, you'll see a distinct boundary between the colonies. They're exuding chemicals that say, this is my turf. And as soon as a seedling uh, or an acorn or whatever puts out that root hair and it's developed enough to form a mycorrhizal relationship, its territory has been claimed. Hmm. And that fungus is not going to give up that territory because that means it's going to die. So it's all competition and maybe there'll be another organism. This is a lot of stuff we don't know yet because it's really hard to study at the technological state we're at. But there's a ton of warfare going on in the soil. And so maybe something will change where your favorite chanterelle spot turned into nothingness because another fungus came in that doesn't produce mushrooms that's acting as the relationship with that tree now. This is all a lot of maybes, 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 because I don't want to make anybody mad at me for saying this is how it is because I don't know how it is and sure. I have a PhD in this stuff. But, but that's a good point because if you don't know how it is and these people you work with or that you collaborate with don't know how it is, then how can so-and-so on some YouTube channel know how it is? <laughs> right. I mean, it's all speculation and yeah. sometimes good ideas come from those YouTube videos that a scientist would be like, you know what? We didn't think of that and now we're going to pursue it and we can find research project that leads to this answer. Yeah. So yeah, totally. yeah the world needs all types. And like we said, one day I might die and there'll be someone there that tells me, yeah, they are all sharing. And I'll be like, okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) Everything competing, the bullfrogs in the the pond are competing, the, you know, everything is competing. 
No, it's so true. I think about this all the time. There's this amoeba that we study in our lab that's photosynthetic and it lives in these tiny population sizes compared to all the different microbes around it. And, you know, you could say, ooh, that's kind of bad. But no, that's its strategy. That's how that one's competing. It's not getting as many. There aren't viruses specializing to attack those amoebas because there aren't a lot of them to attack. It's like everything has its own strategy and, and everything is kind of in competition. But it's fascinating because there's so much for us to learn yet. And to I always circle back on topics. But what I was talking about with that tree of life and the black lines and the gray lines, yeah. I'm a president of a mushroom club and we're hosting a foray like we do every summer. If you're really into fungi, your state or region probably has a mushroom club. Our mushroom foray this summer is going to sequence 700 isolates from our foray. That's amazing. And- Yes, but the thing that's really exciting about it is we're probably going to discover a bunch of new species because sequencing was really expensive, like even three years ago. Hell yeah, and... you're, you're going to discover so many new species. And if you need help putting them into whole genome trees, I will help you. <laughs> okay. yeah. it would be terrible. To that's do, what I yeah, do. Sure. That's what I do now I'll all keep, the I'll time. Keep you in mind, it would be cool to make a presentation for everybody that came to the foray and helped out. But yeah, we're getting them done by a researcher and oh, cool. uh, he's giving us a really good discount. It costs money, but it does, you know, it costs about, it's going to cost less to do 700 than it's going to cost to do one five years ago. Yeah. By thousands sure. of dollars. But that's the thing to bring it all back. There's so much to discover yet. And there's so many relationships to discover. And you can think that you've read something your whole entire life in a field guide or a textbook. And then someone makes a discovery that blows that all out of the water. Like a really good example is the relationship we're talking about again in the beginning of this podcast, lichens. They're a relationship that we've known about for a while. And in fact, the word symbiosis was created to describe what a lichen is. And so a lichen is a symbiosis, an arrangement between algae and a fungus or a cyanobacteria. You know, there's a bunch of different caveats all the time. But They thought for the longest time it was like a one-on-one relationship, but they were able to split the two organisms, but they could never put them back in a dish and make a lichen. Hmm. And it's because there's another fungus that is kind of under the radar. It's a yeast that's a key part of making the cortex of a lichen. And it is, you know, under the radar. It's not very obvious. It doesn't really grow on petri plates that well. And it was discovered because of genetic advances, right? They were able to see that there was another... I think they looked at Basidiomycota and Ascomycota, which are two phyla within fungi. And they've always been looking at Ascomycota. And then they stretched out to Basidiomycota and they found that there were two organisms mm-hmm. in the relationship with the algae. So now, That's you know, so that cool. was found in 2016. And it's totally shook up the whole world about what we know about lichens. Yeah. And I had my boss on, on one of the episodes. And I'm only bringing this up now because I love shaming him. But he he's <laughs> our lab is very into symbiosis and endosymbiosis. Mm-hmm. We don't work on lichens, but he helped coin this term called the menage a trois hypothesis, which Ooh. I think is like so funny. So I just love bringing it up on the podcast to like embarrass him. Right. But it's it, that's the same idea with these lichens is that there were three. There were three facilitating yeah. the symbiosis. And that's that seems to be actually like a common theme in these long-term symbioses is that there's often a third partner. So that's really interesting. So it it just changed everything. You know, I was in graduate school in 2016 when we discovered that. And I think I was actually in mycology class. So it's like, yeah, it was a great one of those journals you had. It was real. It was a real journal that we read in 
class instead of something that has been repeat printed every year. <laughs> That's exciting. Well, earlier when you brought it back to the petri dishes and you mentioned how the fungi growing on the petri dishes form pretty distinct boundaries from each other because they're putting out different chemicals. It made me think about how I think that's that's what a lot of people know about fungi is that maybe they're poisonous or maybe mm-hmm. I don't know. One story I really like was as an undergrad, I did a lot of um like immuno staining and we used phalloidin mm-hmm. staining and I looked up what it was and I forget what the fungus it comes from was called like you know, Floyd and something, but it's responsible for the most deaths throughout history. Like all these famous deaths of people poisoning, people poisoning people with mushrooms that look like not poisonous mushrooms. And it, it, I think it has some connection to the stain, the stain I use, but I just thought it was really interesting. Oh, Floydian. It's uh, is it Phalloides? Probably. Yeah, probably. Maybe. Oh, sorry, I'm Googling. While yeah, you're no, Google it. No, that's good. Yeah, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. This was like 10 years ago. This was like 10 years ago. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I did this staining and I, I just Googled it because at the time I was just so interested in where we get all our products we use in the lab from, from nature, a lot of them. And yeah. I just started going down this Wikipedia rabbit hole of these fungus poisonings of famous people of history. And so wow. I don't can you talk a little bit about the cool chemicals that we know are in fungi and I know makes them somewhat dangerous or somewhat fun or, you know, whatever, but. Sure, I'm not an expert on that. I was part of a lab that published a paper about the chemicals that fungi make, but I know that ammonite phalloides, which is, you know, you're talking about that. I recognize, again, I love words. So (laughs) knowing a connection of a word, you're like, I can guess that that's from ammonite phalloides, which is the death cap. That's the yeah, common yeah, that's what it is. And so, you know, like, that's a pretty good chemical. But there's another mushroom that I know that's, you know, in our area, gyrometra. So it's the false morel. And that makes a chemical that's similar to making, like, if you were to ingest it without cooking it, because that's a whole new, another new yes. discovery that you eat these toxic mushrooms if you cook them enough. I am not endorsing you to make any mushrooms or eat any mushrooms on this podcast. But the gyrometra false morels, if you ingest it, your body will make rocket fuel inside <gasps> of it. And you'll die. You'll get really sick. And this has become something that recently someone has figured out if you cook it a special way, you can eat them. And it's become like one of those, well, actually, you, you can eat it. <laughs> it's become one of those things. And it's just a super nerd point. But yeah, there are a bunch of mushrooms that they really put so much stress on your liver that there's not a cure for if you eat them. Yeah, that's, it, that's what I read about the death Yeah, you can get a yeah. liver transplant. Like, that's the big deal. And uh, you can cut your liver into three pieces and donate it, and your liver actually regenerates. I, yes, I so, heard about this. Yeah, in the human body, uh, we, we can regenerate Amazing. our livers. And children, I think under the age of three, they can regenerate their top digits of their fingers. Wow. But you can't as a yeah. That's very, very yeah. cool. That must have right. something to do with like stem cells or something. I don't know. Right. That's if you have cool. an emergency with your toddler, they might grow their fingers back. Uh, so <laughs> if you look up false morale mushrooms, you'll see the older articles that are like, you'll get very sick and it's poisonous. It's very bad. And I, I support that. But then there's like these newer ones that are the well, actually. So yeah, uh, but that's all, you know, chemical breakdown. There's less mushrooms that are incredibly toxic then there are good mushrooms. Like, I don't know okay. if you know a lot about 
mushroom types, but the bolites, like a porcini, that's a, oh, that's a okay. bolete yeah. mushroom. So there's there's hundreds of that group of mushroom in Appalachia, and I think there's eight of them that can make you sick. Okay. And so, like, when you learn those eight, you kind of know what you can avoid and what you can eat. And there's a lot that's of mushrooms that are edible, but not delicious. So what's the point? That's good to know. <laughs> With any organism that's producing these very bioactive metabolites like is there interest in scientists studying them for medicine or for what yeah yeah there's a lot of research that's going on and again this is out of my wheelhouse I've been associated with labs that have done this and I uh, worked as a kind of a general science technician for a while and saw a bunch of stuff that labs are doing across the country. I've seen lab working on chemicals isolated from mushrooms or fungi in general that can be utilized as medicines. There's a medicine that is in Europe that comes from, I believe it's an aspergillus species that is utilized for dementia. And so aspergillus is associated with lysergic acid, which a lot of people think of trippy drugs like LSD. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff like the, um, oh, what was it? The ergot, ergotism, ergotism of rye grain that caused people in the medieval ages or the Salem witch trials. People thought that they were witches, they were hallucinating. And there's research now that's finding out that at certain dosages or levels could be associated with increased blood flow to your brain versus constricted blood flow, which was Mm. what was happening with people in the medieval ages, right? There's constricted blood flow to their brains, which was causing them to hallucinate and accuse people of being witches or something else or losing their limbs, right? Because they were having constriction issues all over their body. But if you have it in a certain dose that's controlled, pharmaceutically, medically controlled, not you taking Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, something that's controlled pharmaceutically could be utilized in a good way to open up the pathway to get more blood into your brain. And don't you worry, I do a disclaimer so uh, about right, medical information your- <laughs> because my dad's a lawyer and I'm so scared of somebody right, being scared. like, uh, someone on your podcast said this thing. So I took like a handful of whatever and now I'm dead. Right. So right. you can like say said, whatever I, you want. We're protected. I've read many papers about these kind of things. I had to read them for graduate school and then also I read them out of my own interest. And literally these things are all environmental organisms so one of those things that you grow on your petri plates open up a microbiology 101 that could be the fungus that has the metabolite that allows for your heart to no longer have heart disease <laughs> like it's all you know yeah. it's all in the environment so yeah it's really important it's very cool to think about do you have a favorite fungus that you like to find or that you like to look at <laughs> it, changes, it changes every season so like i said i'm a president of a mushroom club and during the winter there's really not a lot of fungi out so it's always exciting to see the morels even though they're not my favorite mushroom i live on the east coast so some of these things might not make sense to some of your west coast listeners or international listeners but on the east coast there's a really famous springtime mushroom that's really sought after as being a prized edible and it's just fun to find it because it's like a little scavenger hunt But I like the edible ones. They're fun because it's exciting. It's an experience. You get to go home and share your skill set with your friends. And it's really, it it is something that you should not take lightly because you could cause toxicity in your friends or, or yourself. So it's exciting to reap the benefits of something you've studied so much. More so than getting a degree. Right, you study so much, you get the degree, and you're like, now what? Whereas you go and find the mushroom you study, and you're like, mmm, delicious. No, listen, I get it. 
Like I'm the same way. If there was this puddle down the street from my house and I found or my and I found this one microbe in it that I never found before and I like still think about it every day and it is much more rewarding than a lot of the things I do right. day to day. So it's fun finding the new stuff and you know, there's always something new to find. I, I forget what it was, but literally this weekend I found something that really excited me. Oh, it was something related to insects. But this weekend I found something related to insects that I hadn't seen before, but I knew about it and it was just exciting. And then it was exciting to think about while I was on this really big hike, you know, for a whole hour, I was just thinking about like, wow, I'm like in my thirties and I'm still finding stuff that's new to me and potentially new to science. And I just live in Appalachia. You could do this forever and you'll never stop finding new things. That's what's so cool about the world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I love it. It's great. And, you know, get yourself a microscope like you have and you'll never see your family or friends again. No, it's like, it's <laughs> like addicting. <laughs> yeah. I feel like a collector. <laughs> yeah. There's things in different groups that I want to find, but yeah. Well, yeah. so I've asked a couple other people that have come on this question, but if people listening want to start getting involved in some sort of naturalist endeavor, like I've had mm. people talk about algae in that way or other microbes in that way. But if they want to take a walk in a forest and start learning what things are, where do you start? Well, the biggest thing for me was to learn to respect my elders, Mm -hmm. uh, which sounds silly. No, I think that's good advice. Well, yeah. I mean, you would see all these groups of just like people in their 60s or 70s going on these nature hikes with master naturalists and stuff. And they just have so much information to share and the reason they make up those big groups is because they're retired. And so they have, have the time. But if you have the time as a 20-year-old, 30-year-old, 40-year-old, whatever, to go hang out with people who've been looking like we were just talking about the forest forever, do it because you'll just learn so much from them. So, you know, whatever your interest is or just try something new, I would say, you know, try to join the Master Naturalists. They have fun classes where they have speakers like me come in and talk about fungi one week or they'll talk about birds the next week or you can join one of your naturalist clubs in your state because your state probably has a botany club or you know botanical society or a mushroom club (laughs) which sounds weird but you'll just get to go walk out in the woods and learn from a bunch of people that have been putting their their eyes on the ground or the forest floor for several decades and everybody's really eager to share their experience and what they learned because they genuinely love this thing and they think it's neat. So get out there and you can be socially awkward, especially with the botanists <laughs> and the mycologists. They're real weird. <laughs> so you can just, you know, be your weird self. You can be quiet and be observant and someone will happily show you a mushroom they found and talk to you about it. And then you can do your own research at home just from, you know, Google Scholar. I think that's really good advice. There's a little place near where I live, the swamp, and it has nice short little hiking trails. And I I like going there sometimes. And there's a group of little old ladies that work there on the weekends in this little like information booth at the entrance of the hiking trails. And they're the stewards of the swamp and they know Mm -hmm. everything. They'll be like, if you go over there, you're going to see these five different fish today. You're going to see these turtles. It's just, it's so, I want to be one of them. (laughs) Right. I know. So like if you start in your 20s. Yeah. Think about the caliber of the old ladies that are hanging out at the nature center in what, 2050? Yeah, well, no, true. Yeah, and I think I did. I think I started with this microscopy when I was like 22. So I Mm -hmm. think 50 more years and (laughs) I'll be a real expert. Before we wrap things up, is there anything else about fungi or forests or anything you want to talk about? 
Building off the last thing I said, I think it's really important to look at your sources of information, especially because fungi seem to be really clickbaity right now. Mm, good advice. They're exciting and they're different and they're, you know, not well understood. But I just see so many articles that are not really articles. And again, going back to what we talked about earlier, the whole example of the lichens in 2016 being discovered is something completely different than what we knew for the past 50 or more 100 years because we knew lichens existed forever. But, you know, if you go to Google Scholar and you type in whatever you want to look up, be considerate of the date that these publications come out because things have changed a lot. And also be considerate of the authors and their institution. And if you can be savvy enough to figure out who is funding their research, sometimes you'll be excited or disappointed to see who is funding that research and there might be an agenda. So use your own brain in listening to other people's really scientific skilled brains. But be, be smart about your research. That is really good advice. And that is a topic that has been coming up almost every week on this podcast because wow. there's so much clickbait. Like last week I had Tardy Babe on to talk about oh, tardigrades. Cool. I, we we called it the tardigrade takedown. It's like the stuff they post about those things. I it makes me it makes me hate tardigrades. I'm I'm so sick of them. Oh, they're they're aliens, they're astronauts. It's like, no, they're animals and they evolved here and they do what all right. the other animals do, which is like eat, have sex, and die. Like they're not, they're not interesting. Which is, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, everyone's been saying, and like, I appreciate that people think of me. I really do. It means a lot to me. When I, people say, oh, have you seen the, the Last of Us? And I'm like, no. <laughs> because it seems like super clickbaity, and I would be that annoying scientist that would be like, well, that can't happen. And I would, you know, I'd be annoying, but I would kill the joy for you in watching this fantastical show that's been made. But the clickbaitiness is something to consider. Don't skim things. And if you really want to know what something is, you have to devote a little bit of time to it and be smart about your resources. Yeah. And I'm curious to learn more about fungi. And there's been all these different cool. documentaries coming out. I think I've learned in this space, especially to be wary of people who are like, this is going to save the world. Like these big claims, like the big claims are not true. Science right. doesn't happen in revolutionary ways. Science happens little paper by little paper by little paper. Yeah. Yeah. And also I feel like sometimes that kind of mindset feeds your bad behavior as a person or a consumer. You're like, well, it doesn't matter that I do this because they're developing a fungus that's going to degrade all the plastic in the problem yes. solved. Yes. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Kristen, this has been so great. If listeners want to follow your work, where can they find you? Yeah, I uh, I post a lot of stories and not so many posts anymore, but I'm going to gonna get back into it <laughs> on uh, Instagram. And my username is kdubs, the hiking scientist. I mostly just share things that I find on hikes and talk really briefly about you know things that are in your backyard and I'm very fortunate to be able to travel a lot so I talk about plants that are in your backyard every once in a while and your backyard might be California or it might be Pennsylvania but yeah it's just a lot of fun stuff that we encounter and a lot of things I read about so you don't have to <laughs> cool no I think I think like your account is a good follow like I think it's it's oh, probably the you. account I've learned the most from so definitely wow. good yeah definitely recommend. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. It was so much fun having you. Yeah. It was nice to talk to you too. It was a good hour, but it's been fun getting to know you over the past couple of years from the internet. Yeah, you too. I know. 
It's been interesting. I feel like we do a lot of complaining to each other about creeps, but it's yeah, it's good. It's nice. I this podcast. I don't really know why I even started this, but like, I feel like I've asked all my Instagram friends that I know to come on it who I've never met in real life. And now I feel like I'm making so many friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's definitely helped. And you know, there's a lot of fakeness that can come with Instagram or yes. any social media. And so that's, an, that's another thing too. Like, I always try to be as real as possible as I can on Instagram. And it's like, yeah, it took me a really long time to be where I am today. And you know, I know that education is not accessible to anyone. And what is it like less than 4% of the world's population has a PhD, but there's just so much to learn about. And so it's like one of the big things you learn about in getting a PhD is literally how to learn. And so I want to help people learn and learn for themselves. So yeah, it's been an interesting voyage. And I've definitely, you know, to be honest, I've pulled back a little bit from Instagram because it is a really you know, when you have thousands of followers and they ask you, where do you live or where are you hiking? Yes, or yes. I get I it all the time. That. Yeah, we've, we've talked <laughs> yeah. about it. Yeah, it's it's yeah. freaky. And, it, and it's hard, too, because, like, you know, I think now that, like, TikTok and other things are a thing, there's a lot of accounts popping up that are very clickbaity. And I've just decided to get over myself and not worry about followers and just not. Yeah, it's not worth it. Yeah, not be. I never want to become something that someone's like, this is a clickbaity account. I don't know if this is real. Like, I just want my thing to my whatever I'm posting to be real. This is real factual shit. And I'm not lying to real anyone. Life. Yeah. Yeah. So I try to not be too manicured. I I will straighten my hair out a little bit sometimes. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll put on a little bit of mascara sometimes, but that's, I that's, try to be a, yeah. as real as possible. No, that's good. And you have a really cute cat. <laughs> yes. That was such a fun episode. Kristen's advice about listening to your elders and being weird around other weird naturalists has really stuck with me. And I think it's perfect advice for anyone who's interested in nature and wants to start learning about it hands-on. It's also hard as an adult to find a new group of friends or community that you feel like you belong to. So if you like fish or plants or lichens or fungi or protists or whatever, definitely look for some sort of local group like those she mentioned and don't be afraid to get involved. Or start one because I would join it because I don't know really about any in my area. And now for today's a cool microscopic or small thing I saw this week where I highlight the work of others on social media. Keeping with the theme of fungi and because it was just St. Patrick's Day, I'm sharing a beautifully fluffy green fungus called Trichoderma from at under the scope or Tracy Devonport on Instagram. In her post, she says this fungus was isolated from a mine and that they're testing it to see if it has bioremediation properties. It's a cool photo and the green color is very vibrant. Definitely check it out. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. Tiny Living Beings is a couch microscopy production. Intro music is by Elf Power and outro and transition music is by El Felipe Beniches. For more information on microbes or the podcast in general, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. You can also find some relevant merch on couchmicroscopy.com slash store. Thanks for listening and I hope you all have a great day. Bye.